Welcome to the Critical Thinking, Critical Issues podcast. And we are here today to talk about the launch of the annual Mercer CFA Institute Global Pension Report Index. I'm Marg Franklin, Chief Executive of CFA Institute, and I'm joined by the lead author of the report, Dr. David Knox from Mercer's. David, I am very excited to be here with you uh, to unpack this important topic and the results of this year's index. Um, It is great to be chatting about this. There is a lot to cover. And of course, there's a lot of important changes to the industry since last year. And uh, so we have lots to dive into. Fantastic to be here, Marg, and I look forward to our conversation. Great. Um, Let's get right to the topic of pensions. Um, I mentioned at the outset that there really have been some significant challenges that we've been thinking about over, I would say, the last decade, um, and certainly things that seem to have arrived at our doorstep just at this moment. So when we think about that landscape, uh, really, we see five critical factors that are markedly different than perhaps the three decades that preceded this moment in time. It's the likelihood of reduced returns, obviously increased risk, certainly inflation, which is dominating not just the business pages and market pages, but certainly the front pages of papers, life longevity, and demographics, where an aging population is starting to really leave the workforce, which creates some interesting dynamics within pension schemes. These factors create a condition for the individual that is challenging, and in turn, it creates challenges and opportunities for the providers. So, David, certainly in our careers, I think the vast majority of it has been dominated by the shift from defined benefit, which was where the responsibility for returns and risk and the ultimate uh, benefit to the pensioner was borne by institutions to what we have now, which are really defined contribution schemes where the individual bears that responsibility. Um, I would love us to maybe set the stage for the audience and perhaps you could share with us what defined pension schemes that that ranked highly on the index. What were the characteristics of those that did well, and perhaps some examples of countries of of those that ranked highly. Thank you, Marg, and you've already covered a number of topics that are really relevant uh, in the pension industry. Let me begin by saying, when we look at the pension or retirement income system in a particular country or economy, we don't just look at private or occupational pensions. We also look at the public pension or social security. So we're looking at the full picture. Um, the complete picture. And what we're really endeavouring to find are the systems and the countries where retirees have financial security, financial well-being and confidence as they move, as they look to the future in their retirement years. Within the index, we really ask three fundamental questions. One is about adequacy. What benefits are you likely to get? Private sector, public sector. The second question is sustainability. Can the system keep delivering, not only next year, but for decades to come? And there is a tension between adequacy and sustainability. And the third question is what we call integrity, or can you trust the system? Is it well governed for the long term? Now, you've asked the question, what are the features of the the better systems? And let me mention a few. 
firstly, they are multi-pillar systems. They don't rely just on the government pension, nor do they rely on the private pension. They have a combination of both. And let me explain that a little bit further. I think the better systems have twin objectives, if I can summarise it this way. The first objective is poverty alleviation. In civilised societies, we don't want old people in poverty. So there needs to be some government pension for at least the poor. But the second objective, and the one we probably concentrate on, is we want to make sure that as you move into retirement, you can maintain the living standards for which you have become accustomed perhaps over the last 15 or 20 years. I'm not talking about living standards when we were students age 20. I don't want to go back to those days. Uh, nor am I talking about living standards that might be considered flamboyant of sports stars or movie stars, but the average person in the community. And that those living standards, that is where you get this combination of different forms of assets. So the first thing is we have good coverage. Everybody is in it. Secondly, we are putting sufficient money aside for the future. Putting aside 2 or 3% of your salary for the future is not going to achieve much. You've got to actually put aside a, a decent amount, and you mentioned earlier, increased individual responsibility. And the third feature is the system, particularly the private pension system, occupational pensions, has good governance and transparency. People can understand what is going on. So the flip side of the poor systems is that they have poor coverage, very few people are saving, and even those who uh, may be saving may just be white-collar workers. They may not be the blue-collar workers, they may not be the gig workers or the contractors or even the self-employed. So we want to see good coverage, we want to see good funding, and we want to see good governance. I want to pick up on a couple of threads that you um, put into your conversation. The first one is really about two to three percent savings probably aren't going to get the individual investor and the individual retiree where they need to um, get to. Much of that really relates to the mindset of that individual investor, right? That we've got the right system set up to drive the behaviors that essentially require delayed gratification um, for those longer term for those longer term benefits. So um, I'd love you to talk more about investor behaviors and um, systems that have pretty good call it nudge principles in there or the kinds of guardrails that help really guide investors almost flawlessly and in flow to those kind of behaviors that'll have those positive outcomes? Sure. I, I, a couple of things are worth mentioning here. I think, firstly, we want consistent messages from all the stakeholders. And when I'm in the stakeholders, I include government, I include employers, I include the media. So we've got to have that message to say, if you want to have a good retirement, we're all in this together. We're working towards looking after our retired population in the years to come. Then I think it's certainly worthwhile having those guardrails. Now, we have systems around the world that are either compulsory for all employees 
um, or there's auto enrolment uh, that you're in unless you opt out. Um, but even many of those systems don't cover everybody in the workforce. And I think of the self-employed, the local plumber or the electrician, often he but can be she doing the work. Um, they're working on their own. They've got a very small business. They've got no business to sell when they reach 65 or 70. And what are they going to live on in their 80s? So I think it's really important that the guardrails, the guidance from government the policies actually cover the whole workforce and that the contribution rates are are sufficient to generate reasonable retirement income. Now, in doing that, I don't suggest that you suddenly jump to a contribution rate of 8 or 10%. You've got to, you know, that's a very significant reform overnight. You've got to do it gradually, step by step, so you don't disrupt the economy, you don't disrupt expectations. But again, it's the stakeholders working together, talking about future expectations and getting people on board. David, let's um, also pull on the thread of the investor behavior of delayed gratification or not. Again, you talked about that 2 to 3% being inadequate to really get to the savings that will be required for non-income earning years. And, um, you know, we often think about that sort of as a moment in time, a dollar or a, an amount that we might set aside. Are there other ideas that you could have to for listeners to think about how to make delayed gratification not so painful? Sure, this is a good question. And I think I'd start by saying pension reform takes time. It's not something that you suddenly do overnight. And a good example of this is where you can introduce auto-enrolment or a compulsory system that might start this year with, instead of taking a pay rise of 4 or 5%, you only take 3 or 4%. And 1% goes into the pension system. The next year, you put another 1% in or half a percent, depending on the economy and the circumstances. So you gradually introduce it over maybe a five or 10-year period. It's not a sudden change. And what the advantage of that is, is you're not taking anything away from people that they have. You're actually saying, in the future, we are going to save for our retirement. This is a plan this is not a short-term fix. A very similar thing occurs when we talk about retirement ages or pension ages, and there's a debate going on in France about the retirement age and in other economies. We don't have to change the retirement age overnight. Again, you gradually change the retirement or social security age over a 10-year period. So you're not taking anything away from people, but you are changing the expectation. I love that idea. You get the benefit of the hit of a, a wage increase and you still increase your savings. Very, very elegant. When I hear you talk about that, I think about a basic tenant of investment portfolios, two of them really. One is having a sufficient time horizon to realize those returns that can be volatile in the short term, but really add return capability to the portfolio. And then secondly, diversification. So when we think about the defined contribution schemes and many people you know, listening in will be people responsible for overseeing these defined contribution plans or investment managers, um, they'll be a stakeholder that really contributes to a well-functioning plan. Um, can you maybe talk about what you've seen both in the index 
work that you've done, but also more broadly from your experience in this around what makes really good investment strategies, schemes that allow the individual to get the benefit, for instance, of long-term stock returns by being able to withstand the volatility that they see, can see in a day-to-day basis at their check. Absolutely. And, and I, I think you've picked on two really good points there. Diversification is really important. And we don't want people investing in cash. The cash rates might be going up slightly at the moment, but clearly investing in a diversified portfolio will generate a much better longer-term return notwithstanding the ups and downs that are inevitable in the shorter term. So we want a diversified portfolio. Um, We also want people to understand it is the long term we're investing in. There will be shocks in the market, whether it's a global financial crisis, whether it's a pandemic, when the share market drops 10 or 20% in a short period. But the evidence is that individuals who suddenly change and get out of the market just because it's dropped 20%, often never get back in. So they move from growth assets to cash after it's dropped, and then they don't come back in for a couple of years, by which time the market has boomed again, and they've sort of sold at the bottom and bought at the top, which is not good long-term results. Um, The other point I would make is the whole de-risking attitude. We understand whether it's target funding or de-risking or whatever it might be, that people have a target of perhaps the retirement date or retirement age of 65, 70, whatever. I'm concerned with that because when one retires at 65 or 70, we've got, many of us have got another 20 or 30 years to live. To suddenly move into conservative investments when we're age 65 is not in our long-term interest we're actually sacrificing future returns. So I think we've got to be very careful about that whole concept of uh, de-risking. So David, you and I, when we were preparing for this podcast, we talked about the kinds of things that pension schemes can and administrators can be thinking about to really get people's mindset to understand why they're contributing and what that adequate contribution rate is to set up a, a suitable portfolio, not only for the period that you're working, but then also for that, what could be a really quite a long period of time um, in retirement. And I loved that we had talked about the four E's. So perhaps <laughs> you might enlighten the audience on, on your thinking on that. Oh, thank you, Margie. Yes. And I think these four E's are particularly relevant for defined contribution plans and defined contribution members. Um, The first is engagement. We've got to engage the member, engage the individual for them to recognise that this is a long-term plan. Now, most people in their 20s and 30s don't care about pensions. Retirement is decades away. But if you start to engage people and say, have you thought about your grandparents? What lifestyle are they living uh, are they poor? Are they doing well? You know, most people in their 20s have grandparents in their 70s or 80s, and that can help identify what the future looks like. So we need engagement in appropriate ways. And with the generation of the 20s and 30s, you don't send them lots of papers in the mail. That doesn't, certainly doesn't work. We therefore need education as well, so they understand a little bit about the markets and the volatility and don't suddenly get out when there's a little bit of a crash. Um, 
that then leads to expectations. So what am I expecting from my pension fund, from my provider? I should be expecting at least an annual, if not a half yearly statement of what I'm doing, um, where the money is invested, but also a projection or an indication of being to at the age of 65 or 70. And when I talk about that, I don't just mean a pot of money of a couple of hundred thousand or whatever it might be. We need to convert that into an income stream. So, you know, a quarter of a million might be a lot of money to many individuals, but when that's got to last 20 or 30 years, it's not much at all. So we've got to start talking about incomes in retirement, spending money, if you like. And the, the fourth E is equity. And this might seem to be a bit of an odd one, but I think equity is about fairness, trust, and confidence. And in terms of equity, a couple of things I would mention. One is fees. Uh, we want fees to be reasonable. And if there is a default system, that should be cost-effective and people are getting good value for money. And the other area of equity is in the retirement years, um, we have to think about the longevity risk and how do we pool that longevity risk through annuities or other means. And we also know that life expectancy uh, is significantly influenced by socioeconomic grouping. Uh, White-collar workers, for example, on average live longer than blue-collar workers and so on and so forth. So we need to think around equity in the longevity space and who we are pooled with. Now, that might be a, a nasty actual problem, if you like, but I think it's a society issue because if we don't have trust in the system, people will lose confidence and they don't want to be seen that they're just subsidising somebody else. David, um, you, you've been in this business for a long period of time. You've studied this for a long period of time. The index has been around for a while, so you've got to sort of simmer in, in the data. Are you, do you feel better about the state of at least the tools that we have at hand if done well? Are you feeling better about the state of defined contribution schemes or are, are you at this point more concerned? Uh, yes, no, <laughs> a double-edged question there. I Look, I, I think there are actually benefits of defined contribution schemes. Many people obviously recognise that, uh, you know, with the individual bearing the risk previously, it was the employer sponsor, we're leaving individuals to their own devices and some individuals will make poor decisions. Um, we've got to try and help them and therefore default products can be very useful in that space. On the other hand, the advantage of defined contribution schemes is there is more engagement. Uh, I, I see my pot of money, I've just said before, I don't like the concept of a pot of money, but I see that growing. I see my contributions actually being vested in my name. It's not in the employer's name. This is my money or my together with my partner or household, um, we, we have got more control. Now, there's a double-edged sword there because control means I might, might make some poor decisions. But I think that is where the engagement education can work together so that you sort of say, we are moving together. I mean, if you, if you think about the labour force generally, um, 
you know, I go back to my father who worked with the same employer for 40 years. Uh, that doesn't happen anymore. The, in the labour force, many people are changing jobs. Many jobs are not in, being invented yet that we'll see in 20 years' time. Uh, people are generally taking more control of their uh, lifestyle, their income, etc. And I think that's also important for a fact that we really haven't mentioned is with the ageing population, with increased government debt in many economies coming from the pandemic, we can no longer rely on government to the extent we have in the past. We've got to do our own track. Certainly, we need those guardrails, that guidance from government with good policy. But I think we have to say, individuals, you are in charge of your future. We're here to help you. The industry's here to help you, um, et cetera. But uh, take control and understand what you're doing. With Without diminishing the effort it will take to have, I think, a really uh, robust system, I am really quite encouraged by what we understand about behaviours of investors. So, you know, when you and I would have started in D.C., plans were emerging, cash was the default. And we made people fill in forms to actually invest in a program what they may or may not have understood well. And through education and then through some of these default um, you don't have to opt in. In fact, you have to opt out. Um, it start to really, I think, bolster the system such that there is a balance between um, the employer-sponsored programs and, and what we know about people on average, and then individual responsibility, um, individual responsibility from there. Um, I I know that we talked about. Uh, collective effort and that there there are many actors in the system um, that are thinking long and hard about this, whether it's on the government side, whether it's on the employer side or, you know, uh, the work, in fact, that you're doing um, as a consultant and developing these schemes and certainly from us trying to monitor and capture and codify the information. Um, what are some words of advice you might share with this audience, whether they be people who are responsible for these programs or if they're individual listeners who are tuning in to pick up tips and tricks from the expert. <laughs> um, firstly, let me say this is not financial advice. <laughs> <laughs> I'll caveat to yeah, that's exactly right. Um, but I, I think the, the biggest tip is to focus on the long term not the short term. Um, we are very focused on next week, understandably next month, the, our household budget, you know, the next coming months, et cetera. Even in retirement, we find that retirees, immediately after they leave the workforce or they transition to retirement, think five to 10 years ahead. They don't think they're more likely 20 to 30 years ahead. So I think the number one tip is pensions, excuse me, saving for retirement is about the long term. And therefore, don't worry about the ups and downs in the market. They will, in effect, flatten themselves out. We are in this for the long term. Secondly, as we've talked about, diversify your portfolio. Um, don't have it all in cash. On the other hand, don't have it necessarily all in US or Australian equities. Uh, you do want a spread across different asset classes the default portfolios should do that automatically. Um, so don't worry about it if you're in default as long as they have a diversified portfolio. 
And over time, gradually learn more about it. Gradually say, oh, hang on, let me, excuse me, let me go to a seminar. If there's a seminar at work or or, um, available from a reputable provider, um, go and attend and learn a little bit more. On the other hand, one always has to be wary of scams. So be, be cautious in that sense, but look for the long term. David, very, very good advice. Um, thank you very much, first of all, as always, for championing the index. It's a great way to capture a state of the nation. Um, the chapter uh, for this year's index, the report, is on defined contribution schemes, and I think it's an excellent one. And this conversation, I hope, has piqued people's interest. So thank you very much. Thank you for listening. If you would like to read more, you can find the full report in the podcast description below. If you enjoyed today's episode of Critical Thinking, Critical Issues, please subscribe and leave a review or more information. Send an email to ctci at mercer.com. This content is for institutional investors and information purposes only. It does not contain investment, financial, legal tax or any other advice and should not be relied upon for this purpose. The materials are not tailored to your particular personal and or financial position. If you require advice based on your specific circumstances, you should contact a professional advisor. Opinions expressed are those of the speakers as of the date of publication, are subject to change without notice and do not necessarily reflect Mercer's opinions. <laughs>